Would you take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, we'll be reading the entire chapter. 1 Peter 4, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past time, lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, reveries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has, has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice in the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning because we know you're the rock. Your works are perfect and all your ways are just. You're a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just are you. Come in among us and bless us as only you can. We come, O oh Lord, to your word this morning because you are our rock and we know we need to stand on you and on your word. Help us in our thoughts, words, and deeds that everything we do will bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
Peter has taken us through a very somber teaching on submission and then on the suffering living in this world can produce. In verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. We live in a day when so much of the evangelical community is fascinated with the idea of the end times. They have become so enamored with it that they have turned to allowing current events to become the foundation of their understanding of Scripture. We've seen many books written that declare with great authority that this one or that one is the Antichrist. Then to have that person die, only to have the same author write another book declaring with equal authority that someone else is the Antichrist. They base their conclusions on events from the headlines of newspapers instead of solid exegesis of the scriptures. They force these events into the mold of what they think the scriptures teach. This can be a very devastating approach to the Christian faith. It makes the person caught up in it, place too much of his time on trying to discern what is happening in the world and not near enough time on his own life and relationship to those around him. Peter, in his first sentence of this section, offers words of encouragement. Yes, yes, he says you should view life with a very definite eye toward the approaching end. His call is for you to wait patiently and yet with great fervor for the return of your Lord and Savior. However, you should not forget that the scriptures are very clear on the fact no one knows the end when the end will come. You should live your life in great anticipation of this coming day of glory, but not without wisdom. The writers of the New Testament refer to the second coming many times. In Romans, Paul says you should be aware of your relationship to his coming. Romans 13, 11. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In Hebrews 10.25, believers are called to meet together and to encourage one another and to do this so much more as you see the day approaching. In James 5.8-9, in, offer, in offering comfort to those who are oppressed and downtrodden by the evils of this world, he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It appears very clear that the early church did eagerly expect the imminent return of Jesus. However, it is not possible to make the case for their being so tied to the expectation that they forgot to do what they were called to do, and that was to be witnesses. Paul speaks to those who fall into such error in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 where he says, they perished because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. Yes, you should be expectant of Christ's imminent return. However, it must not possess you and take your attention from the work he has given you to do. That work is the work of living a life of disobedience before a lost and dying world. Peter lays out for us six things that would be included as part of that life. Please remember, you do not do these things in order to gain salvation, but to show your love for the one who has saved you. Once God does his work in you, 
changing your heart, renewing your spirit, and giving you his Holy Spirit? There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that can stop you from coming to his throne and receiving a place with him for eternity. When this work of the gospel will be brought to its fruition is not a matter that should consume your time. Your time and efforts should be focused on what you have done for you, what, what, he, what has been done for you and how you can show your appreciation for it. Peter gives these six godly characteristics that should fill your life as a child of God. First, he says you should pray. Second, he explains you should exhibit love. Third, he declares you must be hospitable. Next, he says you must exercise the gifts God has given you. Fifth, he tells you to speak of what has happened in your life. And last, he calls you to praise of the one who has saved you. First thing Peter calls believers to in this life is prayer. This is a hard teaching. Proper prayer says you recognize your complete dependence on God. You understand that you are a totally unworthy creature because of your sin. And you come to the throne of God to seek his help. This mediates against the basic nature of fallen man. In some religions, prayer is made into a work. It's something that buys you worth in God's eyes. This allows you to see it as a gift you give to God. It should be seen as an obligation you owe him. They do not want you to see it as a recognition of your own inability. But that's exactly what it is. You come to God in prayer to ask his help. Peter writes in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. You may remember in 1 Peter 3, 7 these words. Husbands, likewise. Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter makes it clear that prayer is a very important part of the spiritual life of every Christian, and this is particularly true in the context of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul, in talking of the suddenness of Christ's return, says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Along with this, he warns in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The idea is clear. Christians, those who truly believe and trust in Christ alone for their salvation and are properly awaiting his return, they must be clear-minded. They must be in full control of their thoughts. They must be fully prepared to avoid the frenzy of preparation by those who have been asleep or focused on the wrong things when the end does come. Yes, yes, you are to pay attention to the signs of the times. You are to be waiting expectantly for Christ's return. But the way in which you do, or you're to do this, the mode of your expectation, is to be one that is sober and moderate. In other words, you are fully self-controlled in keeping your mind clear and focused on the truths of God's word.
He shows this in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer is called to show much temperance in the things of the flesh. He is to exhibit as he awaits Christ's return the moral principles given in the scriptures. Why? Because this is where his witness is born. For the believer to have unhindered prayer, he must be developing these characteristics of clear mind and self-control. I hope you already know prayer requires effort. Christ warned his disciples that as the end approached, their greatest need would be prayer. Luke 21, 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You come in prayer before God's throne to seek his help in meeting the needs of your life. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are told in 1 Samuel 12, 23, that to fail to pray for someone in need is a sin. What Peter wants you to understand is that it is a gift, a life of prayer that is the basic characteristic of one who wants to lead a life that is pleasing to God. It is through prayer and prayer alone that you can establish a vertical link with your God. Once that vertical link is in place, then he will help you in establishing the proper horizontal links needed in your life. Prayer the Christian, for the Christian is not an obligation. It is a privilege. We need to constantly be in prayer. Don't allow an improper fascination with Christ's return blind you to this most basic concept of the Christian life. Communion with God and his people. Prayer is a very important basic in your life as a believer, but as we shall see, it doesn't stand alone. Peter also says in verse 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Here is a very important addition, love. He says, above all, and does this not show the importance he places on this characteristic? This is one of the first characteristics every Christian must display in his life. Yes, prayer was mentioned first, and it carries the place of first importance. But love is the first trait seen by the world. This is not the first time Peter has taught this. In 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Jesus also taught much about love. He summarized the law in this way. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. In John 13.34, he commanded that every believer love one another. The apostles, John and Paul, also use this new command as the foundation of their teaching on your relationship with both God and man. 
Peter gives weight to the command to love with the adverb deeply. This gives us the extent to which Peter believes this idea of loving others must be taken. How is it that he can command something like love? Most people in our day have bought into the idea that love is an emotion. Just watch the movies, any of them, even the old ones. That's what men have been trying to sell it as for years. The reason they want it to be an emotion is that with it as an emotion, they don't have to love unless they feel like loving, thus removing responsibility from the equation. In the scripture, you will find nothing to break up the idea of love being an emotion. God so loved that he committed his only begotten son. This shows us that love is a command from God. It is a commitment. You are commanded to love one another. He doesn't say, please love each other. It's not a suggestion. He demands you do it. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. It is a duty. Duties require, duties require commitment and place great responsibility on those called to it. This really changes the character of how we see love. To love someone in this way makes it a matter of will. This makes it a characteristic of divine origin. Peter goes on in verse 8 to say why love is so important. For love will cover a multitude of sins. This is a loose quote of part of Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up wrath, but love covers all sins. Here are two clauses that are exactly opposite. Hatred causes problems and creates strife. Love covers over sins and produces peace. Peter declares that above all else, love your fellow men because it will bring peace. There is not one person here this morning that does not have need of forgiveness. And I dare say there is not one person here this morning that does not desire to be forgiven. This is the idea of making love a part of your life. It covers over the sins of others against you and your sins against them. Love in Peter's mind was a very important characteristic for the Christian to display in his life. How was one to show love? First, of course, was in making and keeping the most important commitments of life. Love God and love your neighbor. But, he also said to love each other deeply from the heart. How do you show such love to one you have just met? What can you do to extend your love to strangers? Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. This statement goes to, to further the idea of love as a command from God to show commitment to others. In the New Testament days, this was a very important part of showing love. And I don't believe it has changed. It is still very important. It is important because it shows where your heart is. Are you so set in your own routines and so in love with your own comforts that you're unwilling to put yourself out for others? I think in our day of motels and restaurants, it has become too easy to ignore this command. Hospitality is one of the clear duties of love. It cannot and must not be ignored regardless of the ease of doing something else. Peter says, if you want to be seen and recognized as one of God's children, you must be hospitable to others. 
He says not only should you exercise this gift, but he says you must do it without grumbling. Oh, doesn't he know when to stop? It's bad enough that he commands us to give of ourselves, but now he takes away our right to grumble when we have to do it. No duty given us by God is fulfilled when it is done begrudgingly. The writer of Hebrews warns in 13.2, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Hospitality is a hard gift to develop and exercise. It kind of goes against the grain of our old sinful nature. It is a very necessary and expected trait of all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 12, 13, practice hospitality. To him, this is such an important virtue that in Timothy and Titus, he requires it of all elders and deacons. In 1 Timothy 5.10, he exhorts a widow to show her Christian character through offering hospitality to the saints. This character trait cannot be excluded from the person who seeks to please God for the wonderful gift of eternal life given them through Jesus Christ. This next verse is a very important verse because it carries in it the design of God for friendship among men. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think you should first consider when you do good to someone else, there is nothing more potent at correcting your own attitude. Remember that you do not give what is your own. What you do is simply dispense what God has entrusted to you. When he says in this verse, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. He teaches, you have what you have based on God's plan to fully prepare you to be his minister. The second part of this verse helps us to understand the first. He says, as good stewards of the multifold grace of God. This changes the focus to stewardship. You are to minister according to what you have given what you have been given. God has gifted each one of us differently. This is what we understand is his manifold grace. He equips each part of the body differently so that the body becomes dependent on one another. Your dependence on other men is not wrong in this case because God is the giver of all gifts. God wants us to be interconnected and interdependent on his gifts. This becomes the point in which friendships are established. It begins with, what, with I have something you need, and you have something I need, and we commit to helping each other. Please, don't fall into the trap of counting the cost, because we cannot as men place a value on God's gifts. Trying to count the cost will destroy the foundation of friendship. When you believe you excel another in any gift, when you think you have, your gift excels another's in worth, you must remember, you are God's steward, and your gift is his property on loan to you to serve your fellow man as they have need. 
Another danger faced in this is that some will think they have all they need in the gifts given them. God has not given to any one person all that they will ever need in and of themselves. Every one of us is needy in some way. Yes, God does gift some with greater and more visible gifts than others. But no man is an island in this world and especially in Christ's church. God has appointed things in this way to protect the bond of friendship. You cannot hope to be saved apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot hope to be satisfied and blessed in this lifetime without the help and friendship of others. Therefore, you must, as one who believes and trusts in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation, you must show to the world around you the same grace and mercy he extends to you by exercising the gifts he has given you to help others. Along with this idea of using the gifts God gives the believer, Peter adds an example and is a responsibility that belongs to all who trust in Christ. Verse 11a, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. How do you show that your actions come from God's gifts? Paul says you must speak. This is the foundation of the commission given to the church to go and make disciples. You're to teach others everything you have learned about Jesus Christ. Now please understand, witnessing is not hard. Witnesses in going out and telling others what Christ has done for you. That's what a witness is. You're relaying what you know about Jesus Christ to others. I'm a sinner. He saved me. I know that because of my heart and what has changed in my heart. You have been given gifts. Those gifts are to open the door for your speaking. You can't sit back and say, oh, I, my, my witness is just what I do. I don't, I don't ever say anything to anybody. Well, you're not really witnessing because you're not opening your mouth and telling them about Jesus Christ. As you help others and show them God's love through your actions and make them your friend, you then open your mouth and declare his wonders. This is especially fruitful in times of trouble and hardship. No one likes to go through hard times, but everyone has to face them. You feel vulnerable and exposed by troubles. You can also feel isolated and alone, and nothing feels better than having someone come alongside of you and offer their help. It makes you feel very close to them and willing to hear what is on their heart. Only a divine plan could have produced this. God has shown us through his sending of Jesus Christ how this works. He calls all who hear his voice and receive comfort from his words to respond in kind to others. He then adds, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. When you come to those who need to hear the message of God's grace and you open your mouth, you must speak as God would speak. You must speak the truth. There is no place for compromise in the speaking. It has to be clear. Take heart, for God promises when you do this, with a right heart, his spirit will be with you and will help you find the words. Peter speaks about how you must address the giving of praise to God. Verse 11b. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.
There are several facets to praising God. He first says, if anyone ministers, your praise must begin with actions directed from your heart. A heart filled with love for the wonderful gift of love God sent into this world through Jesus Christ and the plan of redemption. In doing this, you must recognize where the power comes from to do this service. Peter says, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. As one who serves in the name of Jesus Christ, you cannot look to your own strength, but only to that of your risen Lord. The believer cannot do anything with regard to God for himself. He cannot save himself. He does not even contribute to his salvation. He is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, he has absolutely nothing in which to boast but the grace of God. God gives the strength to do the works he has prepared in advance for you as a believer to do. Since it is by God's strength that you accomplish your works, the only praise belongs to Jesus Christ as the one who saved you and gave you your place within God's kingdom. The second aspect of this praise is you're lifting your voice before God in recognition of his work in your life. Peter says, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The hymn to which Peter refers is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here, Peter declares that it is this Christ who has saved you. He is indeed the second person of the triumph Godhead. He is, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. Therefore, he is fully worthy of your praise. As a believer, you must lift your voice in praise, acknowledging him, seeing him as the one who is worthy of all glory and power, acknowledging that he is forever to be at the Father's right hand to make intercession for his people. In conclusion, I trust you understand that this shows all who believe in Jesus Christ need not be put off because of the suffering that comes with this life. God has a plan. He has fully equipped all who believe and trust in Christ with Christian traits to be able to handle hard times. You will not have everything you need in yourself. But without the body of believers, there will be sufficient gifts to carry you through anything. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.25, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Many do give up depending on other believers, and in so doing, they lose the help God had planned for them in times of trouble. Please don't fall into this trap. God says we need each other. He builds the church in order to give us the relationships we need to experience his most perfect love. That love never means more and gives more than when hard times come into your life. This is true from the moment you acknowledge yourself as a sinner. Once you see your sin and your God's holiness and understand that you cannot save yourself, you enter into a life of dependency. You are completely dependent on Jesus Christ for your salvation and dependent on his body, the church, to grow and learn. You learn how to take these Christian traits Peter has laid out and use them both to help you and to assist others. When you put this into practice, you shine forth with the image of Jesus Christ. You begin to witness of his love and grace to those around you.
Let us pray. Father, you ask in your word, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. But as we know, man failed in all you called him to do. Therefore, you sent Jesus Christ, your only son, to become to come into his man's place and complete for him everything he failed to do. Jesus lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. Through Jesus Christ and through him alone, all who place their hope and trust in Christ will find the glory and honor man was originally promised. In his name we pray. Amen.